1 Corinthians chapter 3. I think what we'll do today is I'll read the first part and then give somewhat of an introduction and then we'll dive into the chapter together. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 begins with, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able. For you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? So we'll stop there. We'll end up, by the end of the morning, we'll get to verse 9. But I just thought I'd read that by way of introduction and tell you a little bit about some of my past memories and joyful benchmarks as our kids were growing up. Now, of course, we're grandparents. Our daughter and her husband had their first baby, so that's our first grandchild. And it's interesting watching them kind of go through all the things, all the memories coming back. Oh yeah, I remember the long sleepless nights, and I remember the crying and the diapers and all of that. And as I thought about raising our two kids, I remember those landmarks, those benchmarks as they were growing up. I remember when we were done with sippy cups. Sippy cups, they're such a hassle. Now, I don't know how they make them these days, but when our kids were little, they had these little internal parts, and to get them all clean was just a real pain, and it was just horrible. So we were so glad when they were able to just drink from a regular cup. And then there was diapers. The whole diaper thing and all the money you're spending on diapers, and we did cloth diapers, and that's got its own problems. And we were so glad when the kids were finally out of diapers. Potty training happened, and that was a really exciting time. And then there was car seats. Man, do you remember when your kids were in car seats? Some of you have kids in car seats right now. You would take the car seat out because that would expose all of the Cheerios and crackers and (laughs) cheese sticks and everything that's just smushed into the fabric of the seats. It's all under there, and there's like a science experiment under the car seat. And they've spilled milk and they've spilled other stuff. And they didn't want to sit in that seat. And just for a long time, they were in car seats. And I remember being so thankful when we were finally done. You move from the car seat to the booster seat. And it's all necessary because they're growing up. And that's all part of them growing up. But you expect to eventually get to a point where they don't need that anymore. They've grown up. They've grown past that. Well, you can imagine having a son or daughter like Stanley Thornton Jr., Now, as I tell this story, I want you to know that what we're not talking about here is uh, children that are handicapped in some way or some way disabled. We're talking about there is a normal expected growth pattern that is, again, the norm, the expected pattern of growth for a child. Well, Stanley Thornton Jr. falls into a class all by himself. He's 30 years old, and he is still wearing diapers and sleeping in a crib and feeding from a bottle while he receives $800 a month in disability checks from the government, carrying out his fantasies without a care in the world. The gist of the article that I read was actually about questioning his disability payments, but basically he sits home all day, he's spoon-fed, and he uh, plays with Legos all day. Now, it's not because he can't do other things. This is his chosen lifestyle to live as an adult baby. His condition is called paraphilic infantilism, and it first became known when his life was featured on National Geographic, a show, Taboo Fantasy Lives. And in the show, he's shown designing and building 
his own adult-sized crib. And that's why the senators are saying, wait a second, if this guy can design and build his own crib, maybe he could get a job. That's the gist of the article. He's built his own crib and his own other furniture, including an adult high chair where he sits to be fed his meal. He runs a website and does some other things as well. But I wanted to share that story with you because, again, he's 30 years old, but yet he's still living as a baby, not because he needs to, but because he chooses to. Well, Pastor, what does that have to do with our passage here? Well, Paul, in dealing with the Christians in Corinth, remember we called them a schizophrenic church. They have had a divided mind. They were arguing and dividing, and there were factions within the church. And this was causing a lot of problems. And they would have said about themselves that they were mature. They would have said about themselves that we want real wisdom. They were all enamored with the wisdom of the day. Remember, the Greeks would gather together to hear the debates and hear the latest human wisdom. What are the experts saying? It's like us watching all the morning shows, the morning talk shows with this expert is on and that expert is on. And The experts are saying this today, and then so you run out and you say, well, the experts are saying we have to parent our kids this way or buy this thing or do this other thing, and then that trend changes, and so people are all over the place because the experts are discerning their opinions. Worldly wisdom is apart from God, separate from the things of God, derived not from the mind of God, but from the heart of man. So people build their lives on the shifting sand because how many of you have lived long enough to see opinions change? But they were all enamored with not just the opinions, but the opinion makers. They thought, well, these are the experts. And they were following and aligning themselves with, well, I follow this expert. Oh, no, no, I follow this expert. This is the diet I'm on. This is the diet I'm on. And, And everybody's got their own diet or whatever thing that they're into. And it was causing great trouble in their church. And they would have accused Paul of bringing too simple a message. Paul said, when I came, I just brought Jesus Christ and him crucified. And they would have said, Paul, that's just not sophisticated enough for us. You see, we're sophisticated. Remember, the root of sophisticated is Sophia, which is the Greek word for wisdom. You see, Paul, you're not sophisticated enough for us. We want wisdom. And Paul reminded them that real wisdom is wisdom that comes from God, and it's only determined, only gotten by the Spirit of God. No human being can, through their own intellectual pursuit, discover and determine the eternal truths of God. You can't do it. It's impossible because we don't have an eternal mind. We are limited in our humanity. So we are dependent upon God revealing to us the great truths of eternity. And that comes by the Spirit of God. So until a person is a believer, until the person is filled with the Spirit of God, they have no capacity to understand the things of God. It doesn't exist for them. So you might have read your Bible. You say, well, I read my Bible, but I just don't get anything out of it. Well, the first key to understanding your Bible is to be saved. If you're not a believer and you try to read your Bible, you might go, I just don't, it's just crazy to me. It's just foolishness. Well, that's expected because you don't have the Spirit of God. You're unsaved. Paul calls them a natural person. A natural person in Paul's mind is a person that All they have is their human nature, the thing that they share, that we share in conjunction with the animals. That's human nature. Those base desires. Remember I said sex drive, food drive, power drive, and those kinds of things. And then there was another person that Paul introduced us to in chapter 2. That was the spiritual man, the person that is saved, the person that has the Spirit of God, 
and that now can understand themselves, understand the world around them, because they have the truths of God. But then there's this third character of person that we meet here in chapter 3. Did you catch that? Paul says, I wanted to speak to you as spiritual people, but I couldn't. I had to speak to you as carnal. So that word carnal, we know the word carnivore, right? You've used that word carnivore. The root word carne is the Latin word for meat or flesh. In the Greek, it's sarx, S-A-R-X. But in the Latin, it's carne or we get carnality. That's a weird word, carnality. It just means having to do with the flesh. And so all of us are fleshy people. We're all made of flesh. Flesh and bone, Paul says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and bone. So this body, this flesh, we're all flesh people. And so Paul says when he came, he wanted to speak to them like speaking to spiritual people. People that have the spirit, people that have a level of understanding of deeper things. But he couldn't because they were fleshy. And that's one form of the word for carnal. But there's another one that he uses. It's one thing to be of the flesh, that we are fleshy people. But the idea here is that although we're fleshy people, we don't have to live fleshly. Does that make sense? We don't have to live according to those basic human desires and pleasures and all of that. We can live above that. We can live as spiritual people even though we're in a fleshy body. So this is not synonymous with the natural man. There's the natural man doesn't even care about the things of God, not even on his radar, could care less. Remember, I used Madonna as the example. We're just material people living in a material world. That's the natural man. The spiritual man has a focus on the things of God, the things above. But the carnal person is the one that confuses the world. The carnal Christian. You see, they are Christians. Did you notice that? Paul says, and I, brethren. Could he call unsaved people brethren? Well, maybe that's not convincing enough. Go down a little bit farther at the end of verse 2. He says, I had to talk to you as to babes, where? In Christ. These are people that are in Christ. They are people that had potential to live for God, but instead they chose, because of what they were feeding on, they chose to live based on those basic principles of pleasure and desire. That was what was driving their lives. So this is the person that confuses the world we live in. The carnal Christian. The person who is going to church, but living like the world the rest of the time. This is the person that has not yet applied the truths of God to their lives. Well, watch how this happens. First of all, the interesting thing is that Paul says, look, I wanted to speak to you, like speaking to spiritual people, but I had to talk to you as carnal. And the synonym for that was I had to talk to you like babies. And the word really is infants. Now, how would you feel if you were sitting in Corinth and Paul said, you guys are babies? What if I sat here in Fluvanna and said to you all, you guys are a bunch of babies. Grow up. Would that ruffle your feathers? Wait a second, I take issue with that. Do you think the people in Corinth took issue with that? You better believe they did because how did they perceive themselves? Oh, we're spiritual people. We're mature And Paul's saying, you got yourself wrong. And he's going to give them two proofs. He's going to give them the proof of their diet. And he's going to give them the proof of their relationships. And that's what he lays out. I wanted to speak to you like spiritual people. The problem wasn't on my end. See, remember they were saying, Paul, give us some deeper truth. Give us some grand wisdom. And Paul said, I tried, but you weren't ready for it. 
He couldn't handle it. You know the old movie said, you can't handle the truth. They weren't ready to handle it yet. Why? Because they were babies. So now he builds on that illustration to give his proof about diet and relationships. He says, verse 2, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. So he uses that illustration. He says, you guys are babies. The proof is when you have babies, you have to give them milk. I mean, they don't have teeth yet. They don't have a developed digestive system yet. I mean, imagine if you took your newborn, laid them in the crib, and put a steak next to them. Big, juicy ribeye. And you could even try to spoon feed it to your baby. That would be cruel, wouldn't it? A baby can't handle that because a baby doesn't have the capacity to. So in the church, there are spiritual babies. There are people that have just recently been saved. I mean, I got saved 24 years ago or so. And I didn't know anything. We call it being born again. Because you're starting all over. When a child, a baby is born the first time, they don't come out running marathons and eating steak. That comes later. There's a process. Are you with me, church? So you come out and there's an expectation that when they're young, they're going to need a lot of care. And they're going to need a lot of attention. And they're going to need to be spoon-fed. And there's a place in the church for spiritual babies, people that are newly born. They need to be discipled. They need to be cared for. They need to be coddled through those early days of just figuring out what it looks like to walk as a Christian. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. You see, he had an expectation that they've been saved long enough that by now they should have moved past being babies. You know, when I used to work in the horse industry, someone would say, well, I have experience. I have 30 years of experience. And we would say, well, actually, you have one year of experience 30 times. So your skills have never improved. And I think for some people, their Christian life is like that. You would say, well, I've been saved for 30 years. And Paul might say to them, might say to you, no, you've been saved one year 30 times. Because you're still doing and living in the same base desires. You've never progressed in your Christian life. So he says, I fed you with milk. Again, milk would speak to us of a basic, simple, first nutritional package and not with solid food. That would speak of something that comes on with more maturity. He says, until now you weren't able to receive it. He wanted to give them more, but he couldn't. And even now, he says, you're still not able. Now, I asked you to mark Hebrews chapter 5. So if you would go there with me, let's turn and look at Hebrews 5. It's another passage that the same illustration is used to describe this phenomenon. Watch what Hebrews chapter 5 said. Look down at verse 12. The writer of Hebrews says, For though by this time you, speaking to the recipients of this letter, you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. First principles, it's the ABCs. If we're talking linguistics, then you would have to learn the ABCs before you can become a poet. Are we together on that? So this is the ABCs, the basic things, the first principles upon which everything else is built. And he says, you have come to need milk and not solid food. It was so bad for the people he was writing to in the letter of Hebrews. It was so bad. They had regressed back past the ABCs. They needed to learn the ABCs again. That's how far back they had slidden that they needed a reminder of the ABCs again. They needed a reminder of what even is the basics of Christianity. And then he describes this. You know, you have come to need milk and not solid food. Verse 13, he says, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. 
The word unskilled means without trial, without utilization. The milk is knowing the word, but never gaining the skills of using the word. You see, we might say, well, the milk is just these basic things, but the meat, well, that's prophecy. The meat, that's spiritual gifts. And I don't think that that's true. Because I know some people that know a lot about prophecy and a lot about this deeper truth. And sometimes people can, well, I got this deeper truth. And Paul's going to show us what real maturity is. I'm laying the groundwork for that right here. I don't think that's the case. You see, it has to do with skill building. I was a soccer coach for many, many years. And in soccer, you get these kids at the rec league age. And the first thing you have to do is teach them how to kick the ball with the side of their foot, not the toe. The natural way we approach the ball is to kick it with our toe, but you can't direct it that way. So you have to undo that natural way and teach them the unnatural way, but the right way, that's to kick with the side of your foot. It's more accurate, more powerful, and those kind of things. So you got to build this skill. And then you do that in practice, then you put them in the game, and they proceed to forget everything that they learned in practice. So you practice it again, and you keep practicing, you keep practicing, keep practicing, until it becomes what? Habit. Habit. Now remember that word, habit. I'm going to come back to that. And then you have to teach them other skills. Once they learn to kick with the side of their foot, then they have to learn to pass. Then they have to learn to play positions. Then they have to learn to be disciplined to stay in their positions. Because if you've seen rec soccer, there's a reason they call it rec soccer, because it looks like a train wreck. (laughs) I mean, it's a mess. Kids just chasing everybody everywhere. But when you're six or seven, you expect that. But imagine if you watched a World Cup game and the Brazilian soccer team is just chasing the ball around all together. This is crazy. This is inappropriate. They know better. Why are they doing that? So the person who only has milk is the one who has the knowledge but lacks the experience and the habit of actually utilizing the knowledge. That's what he says next. He's unskilled in the word of righteousness for he's a babe. Hasn't had time to work on the skills. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age or mature. That is, now he's going to give us the definition. Those who by reason of use, circle that word, we'll come back to it, have their senses, their judgment, exercised to discern both good and evil. The word use is a Greek word, hexis. It means skills that are acquired through practice. That's why it says use. When you use something, you improve at it. I think as Christians, oftentimes we feel like we're just going to grow as a byproduct of sitting in church. But growth comes, maturity comes, solid food comes by applying what you know to be true. So the person who remains a baby who's still needing milk is the person who has never applied the things that they've learned. But as you begin applying the things that you learn and practicing that, then you start to grow. And it takes work. It's God that's working in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. But Paul tells Timothy, he says, hey, Timothy, bodily exercise profits a little. You guys know I like to go to the gym and I'm at the stage in life where I realize that anything we do in terms of our physical body is a depleting investment. Whatever I have now, I don't get to keep. And so I make sure to remind the young guys of that. But bodily exercise profits a little. It's good for some things. But I can't keep it. It's not eternal. So, Paul says, Timothy, exercise yourself toward godliness. Go into the spiritual gym. Take those heavy verses and start to apply them to your life. See where maybe you are underdeveloped. 
in the area of forgiveness. You're underdeveloped in the area of compassion. Maybe you lack some symmetry in your life and start to say, how can I develop that area of my life? How can I develop servanthood? See, that's where you start to grow in maturity. An immature tree never bears fruit, but a mature tree bears fruit. So a mature person does what? Bears the fruit of the Spirit. You can tell your maturity by the level of the fruit of the Spirit that you find in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. There's that one self-control. You see, the challenge, if you go back with me to 1 Corinthians, the challenge for the Corinthian church is Paul had just told them, you have, because you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the mind of Christ. Let's say you decided to play soccer. And we could give you the mind of, let's say, Pele. A lot of people know who he is, right? I could use like Ronaldo or Ronaldinho, or, but a lot of people wouldn't know who those guys are. Professional soccer players that the younger kids would know. But Pele, we all know. Now, if you had the mind of Pele, like here I go, Steve in his natural being can get on the soccer field and I can flub it up pretty bad. I'm not a great soccer player. But if I had the mind of Pele, now look out, I would be something on the field. But then if I got on the field and began to kick the ball with my toe, knowing I had the mind of Pele, my coach would say, what are you doing? You should be like weaving through everybody and scoring goals. Yeah, but I want to kick it with my toe. Feels better to me. I like it better. See, the challenge was that they had the mind of Christ, but they were living like they had the desires of the world. And that's the confusion. Can you get a sense that Paul's a little frustrated with them? There's a little bit of a rub here between he and they. I mean, he's called them infants. He says, I wanted to give you meat. But he says, did you notice, and this compares with Hebrews 5, he says, you're still not able because you're carnal. The end of that verse and the beginning of verse 3. You're still not able because you are still carnal. As long as your priority and the regulation of your life is to live for and pursue the material, you will never grow in the spiritual. You're not able. You're stunted. I used to work in the medical industry and children born to alcoholic parents where alcohol was used during the pregnancy often would have a, a syndrome called failure to thrive syndrome. Very sad. And unfortunately, a lot of God's people have this syndrome we call failure to thrive. They get saved, learn the basic truths about Jesus Christ and the cross and the resurrection and eternal life and get baptized. And they learn all that's for them. There's a very selfish approach to Christianity. What's God going to do for me? But then there comes a point where maturity happens and you go, wait a second. I understand that Jesus died for me, but what does it look like to die to myself? That takes maturity. How does suffering play into this? You see, some churches will leave their people infants, babies, because they never challenge them in things like suffering, eternity, delayed gratification. These are adult kind of attitudes, aren't they? Would you agree with that? You can't expect your infant to delay gratification. Try to tell my now three-week-old granddaughter when she's hungry to just put it off a couple hours. That ain't happening. I know your diaper's dirty. It's going to have to wait. Yeah, right. I am screaming until you change my diaper. You expect that. But then we get into church, and there's people that have been in the church 20, 30 years and all of a sudden, we're having conversations. It's like, what? why are we having this conversation? 
I mean, you should be past the, like church is all about what you need and what you want. Well, look what Paul says. He says, for where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal, behaving like mere men? So the first proof, that was your diet, the things you were eating. Are you able to take the meatier truths, how God's Word applies to your life? When you have a steak, you've got to chew on that. You've got to meditate on that. You've got to think, how does that apply to me? It's one thing to learn on the field in the classroom about forgiveness. We go, oh yeah, forgiveness, that's the way to go. Loving my enemy. Yeah, pastor, we agree. And then you've got an enemy out there and you want to get revenge. Wait a second. It takes skill to take what happens in the classroom. We call it lateralization of skill when you can get it from the practice field to the game. See, out there, the game is happening. In here, this is the classroom. We're talking about the truths of God. Here is somewhat milk in a way. But the meat comes when we begin to talk about how these truths apply to our lives, to our neighbors, to that guy we work with. And that's where it starts to change. And that's one example. If you can't do the basic simple things, if you can't apply loving God and loving my neighbor as myself, we're not going to move past there. But, he says, the relationship side is for where there are envy, strife, and division among you. Aren't you not carnal? Behaving like mere men. So the proof for Paul was in their relationships with each other. William Barclay, commentator, said this. He said, you can tell what a man's relations with God are by looking at his relations with his fellow men. If he is at variance with his fellow men or women, if he is quarrelsome, argumentative, troublemaking creature, he may be a diligent church attender, he may even be a church office bearer, but he is not a man or woman of God. Now look, sometimes we think maturity comes from serving more. Oh, that guy really serves the Lord. He must be mature. Sometimes we think maturity is recognized by spiritual gifts. Oh, they speak in tongues. They have the gift of healing. That person prophesies. The Corinthian church had that. All that. Sometimes we think maturity is shown by having more knowledge of the Bible. Oh, that guy really knows the Bible. Boy, that woman, she can really quote Scripture. She really knows how to pray. And Paul says none of that actually demonstrates spiritual maturity. Did you see what he says? Envy, strife, divisions, are you not carnal, behaving like mere men? What shows maturity is the way you behave in relationship to other people. That shows maturity. I know people that know all kinds of God's Word, but when it comes to relationships, they're not doing so well. That's the proof. And the proof for them was, of their carnality, that they were pursuing these base drives and desires, living way under what they had. Envy, jealousies, zeal, really. Zeal to hold on so fast to my opinion, or my thing, or my group, or what I want. Strife. If you have that kind of attitude, envy, jealousies, then that causes strife, that causes arguments, that causes contentions. Anybody ever been to church like that? That's the Corinthian church. The real challenge here is they would have said they were so mature. It's so easy for us to have a really false understanding of ourselves. We are so good at seeing what other people need to do and so bad at seeing our own immaturity sometimes. Where there are envy and strife and divisions, where people are dividing and, and aligning themselves with this group or that group. I'm of the Republicans and I'm of the Democrats. And you can vote this way or vote that way, but... We're unified around Christ. 
We don't bring those political divisions into the body of Christ. Was Jesus Republican or Democrat? He was Jesus. His vote was for truth, wherever it's found. This is behaving like mere men. You see the expectation? You see the frustration with Paul? It's like, you guys, you're more than that. You're in this human flesh, but you don't have to live like the world. You've got more than that. You have potential. And all Paul is trying to do, like a coach, like a parent, Paul is saying, I just want you to live up to the potential that you have. I don't want to see you as a 30-year-old choosing to wear diapers and drink from a bottle. Are you not behaving like mere men? Now he gives the direct application. When one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? They were identifying with human beings. Anytime you find your identity in a human being, you will live a schizophrenic, unstable life because people are unstable. People come and people go. And trends come and trends go. And you can check it out on Google. What's trending today? Who's trending today? Who's popular today? Do you guys know who's popular today? Who was popular 10 years ago? I don't know. See, that's the point. Who knows? That's the point. It's shifting sand. So that's the problem. They were identifying themselves with these human beings when they should have been identifying themselves with Christ. You know, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah writes, In the day that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And he was high and lifted up. And he was on the throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. But you see, sometimes human people, we get distracted. We get our focus on what people think of us. How other people value us or don't value us. We name drop and we align with the group we value so that we can get the value from identifying with that group. Have you name dropped? We do it. We do it because we want to be valuable. Hey, I know so-and-so. You know so-and-so. Whoa, that's special. No one identifies themselves with the servants. They identify themselves with someone popular, famous. And the minute that famous person drops the ball publicly, no friends to be found. Everybody will scatter because now I don't want to be connected to that person anymore because that'll influence me. So Paul says, when one says, I'm of Paul, another, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? Verse 5, who then is Paul and who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believe as the Lord gave to each one. So the way to fix the problem of identity, the way to fix the problem of division is to get your eyes off of people understanding who they really are. Who are the people in your neighborhood, as they say? Who is Paul? And Paul's writing this about himself. Who am I, Paul would say. And who's Apollos? We are the word ministers there. It's where we get the word deacon. It means a servant. I'm a servant. We're just servants, he says. Through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. And now he gives another illustration. He says, verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters is anything, but God who gives the increase. Now see, I love that. That takes all the pressure off of me. Takes all the responsibility off of me. Look, I'm just a servant. I got some seed. I don't own my own seed. You aren't my field. People are God's field. And those that are sharing the gospel are God's workers. We're servants. 
God owns the field, and guess what? God owns the seed too, doesn't he? Did Paul bring his own seed? No, he brought the word of God. It's God's seed. And all the power is not in the planter or not in the waterer. How many of you garden? Do you like to garden? There's a lot of weeds involved with that. You know, at some point, there's all this hope. And you till up the ground and you start your garden bed. And the first thing you've got to do is you've got to get some seed. And then you've got to put it in the ground. Now, how you put it in the ground, you can drop it. You can force it. You know, you can put it in the ground any way you want. The important thing is it gets in the ground. But see, we like to take pride in. I say, honey, hell, come here. Watch me plant this seed. Look, I'm going to put on my nice clothes, put on my garden clothes, put on some cool gloves from Lowe's, and I'm going to really plant this seed. Watch me do it. Because I want her to go, ooh, honey, you look so handsome when you plant seeds. Wow. But the point is, is that it doesn't matter how good I look while I'm planting the seed or how people go, whoa, do you see how Steve really plants those seeds this morning? But it doesn't matter if it doesn't grow. Who cares if at the end of the season we don't have tomatoes? It doesn't matter how good I look unless tomatoes grow. And I can't make tomatoes grow. And you can't make tomatoes grow. The life, listen carefully, church, the life is in the seed. The seed has life in it. And when it takes root in a person's heart, God makes it grow. All the pressure's off of me. So one guy comes and he plants Paul. He planted the church there in Corinth. And then Apollos, the great speaker, Apollos, the great orator, he comes along and he waters it. Flowery speech. It doesn't matter how fancy it is. It's neither here nor there. The important part is that that seed, it gets watered. You know how that works. Someone you've shared the gospel with, someone you've shared about Jesus, and then they go to work and someone else tells them about Jesus. And then they're on the ball field and then someone else says, hey, are you a Christian? I'd love to talk to you about Jesus. And God is planting. He's using someone to plant. He's using someone to water. But did you see what it says? Only God can bring the increase. So who gets the glory if the garden is beautiful and if the church grows and if people grow, who's responsible? Me? The Methodist pastor? The Baptist pastor? You? I mean, listen, ladies. I know, I've been a pastor long enough. I know some of you, you've got husbands and you want to plant that seed really bad. And you want to drive that seed really deep. 17 times a day, I'm going to drive that seed because I'm going to make this guy grow. I'm going to force him to grow. And I'm going to watering it. I'm going to call it watering. It's really called nagging. I'm just watering the seed, pastor. I mean, you planted it at church and I'm going to water it all the way home in the car, all the way through lunch, going to water that seed. <laughs> Fancy word for nagging. And ladies, maybe you've found out that it's out of your hands. The word can be shared, but it doesn't matter how hard you pound it in the ground or how much you water it, only God can bring the increase. And Jesus tells the parable of the soils. When that seed falls on fertile ground, it bears fruit. A hundredfold sometimes. Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So I like this. What a great perspective. So that neither he plants is anything nor he waters, but God who gives the increase. That's who's something. God is something. You know, we live in the day where we have church growth experts. Have you found that to be true? A guy plants a church and God blesses it. God grows it. The congregation just grows. And now all of a sudden, everybody else wants to know how he planted his seeds and how he watered them so that they can make their church grow too. 
And it's human wisdom a lot of times. Well, we did this and we did that and I planted the seed this way. You can do that. That's all we can share is here's how I planted, here's how I watered. But that can't make your feet grow. You need God for that. We can produce a lot of false growth. We can plant seeds of the flesh. We can speak to people's flesh and get a lot of fleshly people inside. But bodies does not mean growth. Maturity means growth. Fruit means growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So the planter, the waterer, the person that tells you about Jesus, and the person that comes along later on and teaches you more about his word, one is not greater than the other. We're working together. When the garden grows, the planter and the waterer, they high-five and they go, awesome, we got tomatoes together. We're in this together. But each one's rewarded for his own labor. So they're rewarded separately. So God rewards you for your own labor. How many seeds you planted these days? How many seeds have you watered? Are you doing anything with those things? Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you, Corinthians, you, Fluvanians, Flucos, and you, Flucos, are God's field. You are God's building. So he uses another example. We'll get to next week the idea of a building. There's a foundation, and then that foundation is built on. But at the end of the day, all the builders need each other. You need the framer, you need the plumber, you need the electrician, all to build the house. Same thing with the harvest. You need the guy that drives the tractor. You need the guy that drives the harvester, the combine. You need all the people. Then you all enjoy the harvest together. We are God's fellow workers. It's God's field, God's seed. We just get to participate and enjoy it. So then who should your focus be on? In the day that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. People are going to come and go. Pastors are going to come and go. Trends are going to come and go. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You want a stable life? Keep your eyes on Jesus. You want a mature life? Do what he tells you to do. And you will find yourself growing and growing. One final story. The woman that passed away, her son was looking through her Bible. She'd been a Christian most of her life, and her Bible was well-worn and well-marked. As her funeral was approaching, her son decided to look through her Bible and see the things she had underlined and the things that were important to her. And, and by a lot of verses, she had these two letters, T-P, a variety of verses, T-P. Now, when I first heard that, I thought, toilet paper? No, that can't be right. And he asked his father, Dad, Mom's got all these things in her Bible. They all marked T-P. What does that mean? And he said, oh, son, those are verses that your mother marked T-P. T-P means tried and proven. Tried and proven. These are verses that she has applied to her life and seen that God is faithful. Are there verses that you could mark in your Bible? Forgiveness, tried and proven. Loving my enemy, tried and proven. You want to get through with milk? You're done with milk? You want to get to the solid meat of God's word? Then start doing the basic, simple things that he's told you to do, and you'll watch yourself grow.